6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Some communities of the Hasidic Judaism consist of only a few hundred members in isolated Jewish communities in New York City, Los Angeles, and Jerusalem. Other Hasidic groups um, have international memberships numbering in the tens of thousands. And all these communities trace their origins back to the 18th century uh, Rabbi Israel ben Eliezer, better known to the Jewish world as Baal Shem Tov, which is Hebrew for the master of the divine name. And he's credited with all kinds of miracle cures. There's all kinds of colorful traditions that surround all these things. So let's summarize this. Mosaic Judaism is what you would designate Judaism from the Bible, from the Exodus, the birth of Israel as a nation, through, through about the days of Ezra. It's from that period through the gospel period that we see the rise of the oral tradition taking hold through the, Pharise the Pharisees, the Pharisaical Judaism. And that's what's prevalent and dominant in the uh, um, gospel period. The Pharisees yield more to the Sadducees. The real power tends to be with the liberals later in the, in the book of Acts and following. Talmudic Judaism gets, emerges in the third century through the eighth as it gets formulated. And the Kabbalah emerges at the 12th century, and Hasidic Judaism emerges in the 18th century, just to give you a rough feeling for how Judaism evolves into something that you would consider unrecognizable from the point of view of Mosaic Judaism. Simply because throughout, since, the, since 70 AD, they have no temple. They have no way to practice Judaism as specified in the Torah. So they venerate the Torah on the one hand, but can't follow it on the other. So, Paradox, that's a difficult thing to deal with. Now, in all of this, there's another thing to be aware of, that's Gematria. See, in the Kabbalah, there's great importance attached to the manifold manipulations of letters and numbers. Hebrew, like Greek, those two languages are distinctive in that they, all the letters have numerical values. And people play with that in all kinds of ways. Um, especially those that are involved with the names of God. And they even ascribe, Kabbalah subscribes magical properties, certain combinations of letters and numbers. And that's a big part of what they do. The manipulation of the numeric values assigned to the alphabet is called gametria. And there are virtually unlimited varieties of rules for the use. There are no less than seven basic forms, and I won't go through all of these, where you add this and divide by that and... And uh, so when you talk about gematria, somebody says, did you notice if you apply gematria such and so, you need to understand, well, which one are you using? Because there's all kinds of ways. And every time I get into this, I'm reminded of a proverb we have in the computer industry. We say if, that, if you torture the data long enough, it'll confess to anything. And that's really what we have going on here in much of this kind of conjecture. So... Now, there's another dimension of this that's worth understanding, because these Hebrew sages that grew up in that 
Kabbalistic world were brilliant men and very skilled at the manipulation of alphabets and numbers and so forth. So out of that tradition comes what the beginnings of what we study today as cryptography, or cryptology, study of secret codes. In most of the major courts in Europe, they found themselves quickly attached. They had Kabbalistic priests that would be that their vocation was to, to develop the secret codes that the kings would use to communicate to their generals and so forth. And so out of the as you study the field of cryptography, as it starts very simply and gets more complicated through the various generations, you'll find right in the middle of all that are Kabbalists that are practitioners of these skills. And so they, they were attached to all the courts of Europe. Uh, and, and of course, emerged in their flower in the, in the days of the Renaissance, if you will. Now, these coding techniques then start to get rendered into mechanical aids. Even Thomas Jefferson had his code wheels and all kinds of clever things to transpose for transposition codes. And I won't start getting into all the kinds, but the point is that's what they had aids to help them have preserve their secret codes. Now, the, that gets more and more sophisticated into World War II, where the ultimate in those days was these incredibly complex Enigma, was the code name, the Enigma machines of the Germans. And it was a serious problem to somehow, by the Allies, to somehow crack the German secret codes. But it's, at the time, it was considered uh, very complex. But two genius leaders, Alan Turing in Britain and John von Neumann in the United States, led the, the, the attack, the intellectual attack, to try to find ways to break these. And they started developing machines to help them break the codes, out of which comes our computer technology. In the computer field, Alan uh, Turing, they speak of, is a basic founder of the theory of automata. And John von Neumann, is the architecture that we use still today, is, is based on the von Neumann machine, the whole idea that you can have not only managed data, you can have the computer manage its programs. And that closes a very strange loop that makes creates an infinite machine, creates powers that are incredibly uh, effective. But the point is, it's fascinating that they did, of course, ultimately crack Enigma. And Churchill even said something very cryptic publicly. He says, before El Alamein, we never had a victory. After El Alamein, we never had a defeat. What happened at that time? That was the time they cracked Enigma, and for a number of reasons. That's a colorful story in and of its own right. But what's, the reason I'm bringing this up, there's a loop that's closing here, because these, these aids that emerge from Turing and von Neumann become the beginnings of our computer industry. And with, as the computers get more and more powerful, the they start rediscovering the codes in the Bible, the very coding background that led to the the cryptography of the Renaissance, it gets rediscovered as we use computers. We discover there are all kinds of structures hidden under the text. Even though we have 66 books penned by 40 different guys over a period of almost 2,000 years, we discover it's designed in ways that defy simulation manually. And so it's interesting that we have, that these computers have caused a rediscovery of some of the astonishing properties of the biblical text that, uh, and of course, much of what's written in this area is sensationalistic. Some of it's valid, much of it's sensationalistic. Most of it does with, deals with codes that aren't the key ones. 
As you may know, we have published what has become, to some extent, the definitive text in this area. Out of 25 chapters, there's only two or three chapters on the equidistant letter sequence that creates all the controversy. There are the, the most interesting ones are the others, and uh, it's a fascinating study I commit to you. But getting back to the occult practices, anyone with even a modicum of biblical literacy realizes that occult practices are expressly forbidden in the scriptures. Scripture condemns by name spiritism, mediums, channeling, necromancy, communicating with the dead, and so forth. And all kinds of sorcery and divination is expressly prohibited all through the Scripture. And I'll leave the verses in the notes so that you can dig them out at your leisure. But among these things is also a strange fixation by the Gnostics into what we would call today astrology, ascribing supernatural relationships to the heavenlies and magic and all kinds of forms. All these things are expressly prohibited in the Scripture. In ancient Israel, divination was a capital crime. If anyone was caught casting a horoscope or other occultic practice, they were put to death. Why? Because these things are dangerous spiritually. And uh, God is jealous of His uniqueness, and He alone knows what the future holds. And for us to try to divine the future is intruding on His uniqueness. And it, it, it intrudes on His glory, in effect. So, occult activity also courts the deception and betrayal from the demonic realm. And it promotes evil under the guise of legitimate religious practices. you got to be careful with this one. Occult involvement will eventually lead to judgment for those who refuse to forsake it. And that's in the oath of the Old New Testament emphasized. Now the errors, of course, by Kabbalah is they depersonalize God. They try to uncover the Father's nakedness. They indulge and encourage occult practices. And for all these errors, Paul had one remedy. He called it epignosis. That was a very popular word. Among, it's a word meaning superknowledge. Gnosis is knowledge. Epignosis is the supreme or superknowledge. And he would use that term, feeding their own vocabulary back to them, in terms of referring to the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. And that's his re rebuttal. So getting to verse 19. And not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. See the mystic, while believing that he is in touch with a higher reality, has in fact lost his connection with the head. And uh, John 15 deals with that. Three warnings we get from Paul here in this area. Let no man judge you. Let no man beguile you of your reward. And let no one enslave you. Those are the three warnings that uh, uh, populate this segment here. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? And he's going to go on here. There's an if. Greek has four conditions for if. This condition is of first class, which is, means it assumes it's assumed to be true. So we would use the term, another way to translate it would be since. Since you be dead in Christ. In other words, it's conditional, but you are, you see. And uh, dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world. Now that's, that vocabulary deals with elements, a row of series. The, it, it is actually, to the Gnostic, it was a, a, an astrological term. See, in Greece, this meant the elemental spirits of the universe, the angels that influenced the heavenly bodies, 
One of the words in the astrological vocabulary was the word here that we translate rudiments. The rudiments, or stoichia, are elemental spirits identified with demonic powers to whom have been delegated authority in the cosmos and therefore over men, or it refers alternately with angelic powers, generally who mediated the law and exercised the old age a certain suzerainty of, 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 uh, over man. Well, when you deal with astrology, I couldn't resist including a summary of uh, some articles that occurred in Sky and Telescope. That's an astronomer's magazine back in 89. I've drawn on this to give you, it, it raises some in interesting background here. In 1984, a Gallup poll determined that 55% of American teenagers believe in astrology. I suspect that number is actually higher today. In terms of empirical results, all kinds of studies demonstrate it doesn't work. It's a fraud. Let's talk about marital compatibility. Psychologist Bernard Silverman of Michigan State University analyzed birth dates of almost 2,978 couples who were getting married and 478 who were getting divorced. No correlations with predicted compatibility were found. Professional aptitude. Random expectation of 34% was achieved in nature, December 5th of 85. French statistician Michael Gauquelin uh, sent the horoscope for one of the worst mass murderers in French history to 150 people and asked how well it fit them. 94% said they recognized themselves in the description. <laughs> Jeffrey Dean, an Australian researcher, reversed the astrological readings of 22 subjects. 95% identified themselves with the reversed readings. Astronomers Culver and Iana tracked the published predictions of well-known astrologers and astro astrological organizations for five years. Out of 3,000 predictions, only 10% came to pass. See, astronomy buffs True astronomers are always resent the connection of astronomy and astrology. So these trade publications from time to time run articles to point out that astrology is foolishness, not to be confused with the serious study of the heavenly uh, stars. So they have 10 questions that were listed that I thought you'd be interested in considering the, these questions. You ask an astrologer, what is the likelihood that one twelfth of the world's population is having the same kind of day today? Why is the moment of birth, not conception, crucial for astrology? Well, why don't identical twins always have the same personality? And we chuckle. If you know any identical twins, you know they're usually very opposite to one another. If the mother's womb can keep out astrological influences until birth, can't we do the same with a slab of steak? If astrologers are as good as they claim, why aren't they richer? The stock market, how many saw Black Monday of October 87 or 2008? Answer, none. None. Aren't all, this is an interesting one, aren't all horoscopes done before the discovery of the three outermost planets Invalid or incorrect. So you realize that Uranus was discovered in 1781, Neptune in 1846, Pluto in 1930. Horoscopes since should prior to then were obviously invalid. It gets worse. By the way, shouldn't we condemn astrology as a form of bigotry? 
you know, refusing to hire a Leo or to date a Virgo or whatever? Why do different schools of astrology disagree so strongly with each other? There's no, con there's no consensus or convergence here, by the way. And uh, they differ on the roles of the precession of the Earth's axis or how many planets or celestial objects need to be included. And the allocation of the personality traits themselves, they're all different. There's no convergence or consensus here. Now, if astrological influence is carried by any known force, why do the planets dominate? You see, An obstetrician who delivers the child turns out to have about six times the gravitational pull of Mars and about 2,000 billion times its tidal force. Less mass, but he's a lot closer. If astrological influence is carried by an unknown force, why is it independent of distance? See, the importance of Mars in a horoscope is identical, whether the planet is on the same side of the sun as the Earth or seven times further away on the other side. That's not a factor in the, in the horoscope thing. And finally, if astrological influence don't depend on distance, why is there no astro astrology of stars, galaxies, and quasars? It's only the planets they deal with. Doesn't the omission of Regal, the Crab Pulsar, or M31 render a horoscope incomplete? There's a number of sources that you can look these things up. There's plenty of books on this that'll give you more of this if you want to, uh, if you have a problem in this area. But there's another suggestion I thought was very amusing. It was done facetiously, of course, and that's called jetology. It's a new science, not weighed down by tradition or history. You need to have the position at birth of all jumbo jets at the moment of birth and so forth. And obviously you can go on with this and, and have fun with it in a, in a sense of humor. Well, let's move on back with Colossians 2.21, where Paul says, Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and the doctrines of men. This is reminiscent of Eve's misquote in Genesis 3, her carnal suggestion. We're not to touch it. That's not what God said, not to eat of that fruit. But anyway, the commandments and doctrines of men, that leads us to asceticism, the pseudo-spiritual ritual that revels in rules of physical self-denial is based on man's rules. Circumcision, which is a sign of grace, becomes a condition of grace, very subtly. The ascetic's entire life is wrapped up in a system of rules. Paul condemned legalism and mysticism, and then he next attacked and condemned asceticism. Ascetic practices, uh, 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 he, rigor he practices rigorous self-denial, and even self-mortification in order to become more spiritual. Ascetic practices were very popular during the Middle Ages, known as the Dark Ages. Wearing hair shirts next to the skin, sleeping on hard beds, whipping oneself, not speaking for days or even years, going without food and sleep, all these forms of de deprivation are intended to be spiritual pursuits. And, uh, and they're practiced by many in many ways even today. Paul reminds that God giveth us richly all things to enjoy, he tells Timothy in his first letter, chapter 6. Foods have been created to be received with thanksgiving, he also advises Timothy as protege. But the commandments and doctrines of the false teachers replaced the inspired word of God. They always do. When, when false teachers come, they replace, supersede, amend, modify what God has said. 
God gave foods to be used, and they perish with the using. And that was in, in verse 22 of Colossians. Jesus explained that food went into the stomach, not the heart. What defiles the man is what comes out, not what goes in. I know that I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, Paul says in the epistle of Romans chapter 14. Continuing verse 23, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. The flesh, doctrinally, the nature which fallen man has inherited from his first father. Human nature is something that we are to rise above. The homosexual says, well, it's in my nature. Really? Well, I have that in my nature too. It's called murder, adultery. I can go through the whole list. That's in my nature if left alone, not, not dealt with. The devil made me do it. We have a sense of humor that's built around that foolishness. There's, there's a war going on inside. Which dog wins? The one that I feed the most. Monasticism also is not the answer. Untold thousands of monks and hermits and ascetics of all descriptions have proved that they are useless against the indulgence of the flesh. How hard as you try, it ends in failure. By creating a reputation for superior sanctity, as some did, they did not really honor God, but only satisfied the flesh, ironically enough. So this section, anyway, closes the second chapter of Colossians, in which the emphasis was on danger. Paul defended the preeminence of Jesus Christ, and he refuted the false doctrines of legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. The answer to legalism is the spiritual reality we have in Christ. The answer to mysticism is the spiritual union with Christ, the head of the church. And the answer to asceticism is our position in Christ in His death, burial, and His resurrection. That's why we often prefer to, to focus on the resurrected. We, we don't serve the, the Christ that's crucified. We serve the Christ that was risen from the dead. We serve a living Lord. And He's presently seated with His Father and is coming to establish His kingdom. Wrong doctrine always leads to wrong living. Right doctrine should lead to right living. In the two final concluding chapters of this epistle, Paul applied the preeminence of Christ to daily affairs of life. He answers what some people would call the so what question. Okay, so what does this all mean to me practically? We've talked about a lot of doctrines, some very high view issues, great how does it come down? How does the rubber meet the road? How does it impact your life? And that's what he's going to deal with in the last two chapters. If Christ is truly preeminent in our lives, then we will glorify him by keeping pure, by enjoying fellowship with other saints, by loving each other at home and being faithful at work, and by seeking to witness for Christ and serve him effectively. He doesn't call us to monasteries. He calls us to, to grow our families. Unless doctrine leads to duty, it is of no use to us. So as we study this profound letter of Colossians, we must heed his warnings, lest any man beguile you, verse 4, this chapter, lest any man spoil you, verse 8, let no man therefore judge you, verse 16. So there's our outline. We've just finished chapter 2, the, the empty philosophies, the religious legalism and man-made disciplines, 
And in our next session, we're going to focus on our duty, Christ's preeminence demonstrated. And we'll take the first two segments of that, the first half of chapter 3, our pursuit of personal purity and Christian fellowship. So for the next session, I want you to study the first 17 verses of chapter 3. And I want you to explore some possibilities here. I'm going to ask you, what is God's primary jealousy? He's jealous of many things, but what's first on his list? We as New Testament Christians tend to focus on his redemption. But there is something else, more fundamental, that he considers his first line of defense, so to speak. And given that, is there a specific judgment for its violation? We're going to discover there is a specific jealousy God has, and there's also a specific judgment pronounced on those that violate that primary jealousy. And we're going to discover also that there's a litmus test to reveal its commitment. Has God uh, you know, incurred that particular judgment? There's a way to tell very clearly. We're talking about a broad cultural thing here. So we'll leave that with you. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this useful insight into man-made disciplines and their futility. We thank you, Father, for the refuge we have from these errors in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Father, for caring so much for us to protect us from these things that would undo us. We thank you, Father, for the simplicity we have in Christ, being in him. And we just do pray, Father, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, lead us clearly into those practices and commitments that you have ordained, that we indeed will grow in grace and in the knowledge of our King that we might be more effective stewards of the opportunities you give us as we commit ourselves into your hands. Indeed, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 